good to see you guys this morning. We are in uh, part two of this series this month where we're really focusing on the men, and um, we've called it Every Man's Battle, and uh, we're looking at King David and some of his struggles and uh, how he got through those struggles. And um, in case you weren't here last week or in case you just had a million things happen to you during the week and you can't even remember what happened on Sunday, God forbid you'd ever forget what John said up here, but let me just give you the quick rehab, recap. So King David, uh, at the time when kings were to go to battle, the time when his nation was ready to go to battle, he stayed home. He didn't go. Instead, he sent his commander to do his job, and uh, he basically just sat around at home with a bunch of time on his hands and got himself into a lot of trouble. He saw this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, didn't care at all that she was married to one of his best soldiers who was out fighting his battle and decided that he wanted to sleep with her. So he slept with her. Little problem, he got her pregnant. So then he got her pregnant, so he's like, I got to cover this thing up. So he brings her husband, Uriah, the soldier, he brings him home and tries to get him to sleep with his wife so that, you know, he would think that he got her pregnant. And he refused to do that. So King David was left with no other way to cover it up than basically to send his soldier back out to battle and to set up a plot, a scheme, where he would actually have the soldier killed in battle. Quite the scandal for King David. And if you notice, uh, we're in Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 at this point in the story. If you brought your Bible, I encourage you to turn, turn there. And if you look at the end of Second Samuel chapter 11, it, it almost looks like David is going to get away with this whole scandal. Look what it says in verse 26 and 27. It says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So not only does it look like David is getting away with it, but David, did you notice this? David is actually looking like the hero. I mean, he killed this woman's husband, slept with her, got her pregnant, and basically it's like, oh, don't worry, guys, poor grieving widow, I'll bring her in, I'll take care of this woman, I'll marry her. So he's looking like the, the hero when he's truly the villain. And you can almost hear if the story ended there, and they lived happily ever after. But this is what it says as chapter 11 closes. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so you know something is about to happen. And so as we open up... Uh, Chapter 12 is where we're going to be focusing today. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The opening words of that chapter say this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, if you guys remember from last week, who was the one doing all the sending? Do you remember? Yeah, King David was sending. He sent his general out to fight for him, right? He sent to try and find out who this beautiful woman was. He sent the message, you know, to the, to the general to get Uriah killed. David was the one doing the sending. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 12... Now it's God's turn to do some sending. And God is not messing around on this one. Um, And so he sends this prophet, Nathan. Nathan is a prophet, and he sends him to confront David over what he's done. Now, just so you know, a a prophet in biblical times, that wasn't like a highly sought-after job. Okay, that wasn't the job that if you were a parent and you had a a, a kid that you would want your son or daughter to grow up and be a prophet. I mean, unless you really were like a just a total in your face confrontational person and you just love that. I mean, you really wouldn't want that for for your child to grow up to be a prophet, because basically the job of a prophet in biblical times. Here's what the prophets would do. They essentially 
God would, would, would rise up the prophets when the people of God had strayed far from God. Okay, so, you know, when when God's people had started to get off track and they had lost sight of God and they lost sight of what was important and they started doing all this stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Okay, those would be the times when God would raise up these prophets who go and they would just call out the people or they would call out the judge or they would call out the king. You know, they would go and they would be that voice that you need to come back to the Lord and to his commands that he's laid out for us. What are you guys doing? And, you know, these prophets, they only had one way to do this. I mean, they didn't have, like, WikiLeaks, and they couldn't, like, go anonymously to some member of the media, you know, if there was some big scandal or there was some corruption, you know, high up in leadership. They couldn't just leak it out to the press. You know what I'm saying? They only had one way, face-to-face, mano e mano. That was the only way that it could be done. So this is Nathan's deal. He is sent face-to-face to confront King David over what King David has done. And here's the reality, you guys. Unlike, you know, leaders today in this country where there's like a democratic process and there's checks and balances and like you do something stupid, you know, you could get impeached or, you know, whatever. You just don't get reelected or whatever the case may be. In this case, David had absolute power. Absolute power. So if he didn't like what Nathan had to say, he could just totally extradite him or he could kill him, get a new prophet. I mean, that was just as simple as that. So how do you confront a king with absolute power as a prophet. Well, that's what we're going to find out about today. Before we do that, let's pray. Father God, I just want to say thank you for this morning, for everyone who's here. Uh, Lord, as we dive into your word, I just pray that you would speak to each one of us with what you want us to hear and to take away and apply to our own lives. In Christ's name, amen. So, 2 Samuel chapter 12. It says, The Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he had bought. The poor man raised the lamb, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It's a little weird, I know, just just bear, just okay, just, just keep going. It even slept in his arms. That little lamb was like a daughter to the poor man. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. That's not like you to man. You know what I'm saying? High five? No. You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me 
and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. What God is saying here to David through the prophet Nathan, he's saying, look, don't you get it? That guy in the story that you're so outraged about that you say he's worthy of death, you're that guy. And we're not talking about a sheep here, David. We're talking about human lives. You took, you took Uriah's wife and you slept with her and then you had this guy killed. I mean, how many soldiers were, were killed in that battle as collateral damage? We have no idea. But the bottom line is, you're that guy. Look at what you've done, David. This is what God is saying. Just brutally honest calling him out. Now, there's two things that I want us to get from this story that God is saying to David and I think have tremendous relevance for us as well. And so if you're following along, here's the first one I want you to fill in. It's fools don't admit they're wrong. Fools don't admit they're wrong. Now, David was a brilliant man, okay? And it was clear, you can tell from the story, that he had a great sense of justice. I mean, he knew right from wrong, but he couldn't see it in himself. And John talked about this last week. He was so blinded by lust, and he was just so obsessed with this woman that nothing else mattered. He couldn't see anything else. I mean, it just blew his mind. He couldn't see it. He couldn't admit that he was wrong. Guys, I don't know about you, but I hate to admit that I'm wrong. I ju- it's one of the worst exercises, especially in my marriage, okay? It's like, I, I, I mean, I actually, like, it's so bad that I, I was trying to come up with, like, an example, and I, I blocked them all out. I couldn't even remember. I, you know, my wife says I've never done it, but um, anyway, you know, it's just, you, you say it, it's like, it goes something like this, honey, you were right. I was wrong. And it's, oh, it's just dagger. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, I don't know what it is in us men that we just, it's just like something is, we have to be right. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just like, it feels like it's hard wired into us. I don't know why it's so hard, but you know, if you think about it, okay? I mean, if you look at some of the, the leaders, remember if you were here last week, you saw that video clip of like some of our politicians and some of our, you know, some people in the, in the public eye that have done things wrong. It's amazing to me that even when they've done it, and even when they've gotten caught, they still can't admit it. You know that? I mean, you got, I got us. Anthony Weiner, okay? I mean, come on. First of all, what the heck is the guy doing taking a picture of his, you know, and sending it to random people? I mean, how stupid. I mean, you talk about, you know, totally like, this thing just blowing your mind and you do us doing the most irrational, stupid things, okay? But here's the deal. You guys know this, right? This just, just happened. Even after he got nailed, okay? He got caught. It's obvious. He's done it. What does he do for a whole week? He denies it. He can't admit. This is, this is men, I'm telling you, I don't know what it is about us, but we cannot admit that we are wrong. It happens over and over. Look at baseball players and, you know, I mean, just, you can't even, every guy seems like who gets caught, he can't admit it. He can't admit we're wrong. Here's the deal, you guys. Here's the deal, okay? We're here, and we all want to be great men of God, okay? The deal is, if we can't admit that we're wrong, we're never going to get better. If we can't admit that we're wrong, we're never going to be the men that God is calling us to be. I want to read for you guys a Proverbs, Proverbs 26, 11. It's great wisdom sayings in the Bible. It's not, it's not on your outline. So just listen. Proverbs 26, 11 says this. As a dog returns to its vomit, 
so fools repeat their folly. I'll read that for you again. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. The dogs really do that? They return to their vomit? That's disgusting. I see, I've never had a dog, ever. I've never, and I, now I know why I've never had a dog. That's awful. I'm sorry if you're a dog owner, because that's really... But anyway, you know, it's illustrating a point here that if we can't admit that we're wrong, okay, we're just going to keep returning to our folly. We're going to keep making the same mistake. I don't know if you've heard of this. as a short saying. It's, it's called an autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson. I want to read it to you. Powerful. It says this. It's short. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. You know, I was reading a book this past week. It's by a leadership guru named John Maxwell. Many of you guys have heard of this name. He's written a ton of books on leadership. And this book, it's called Failing Forward, Turning Mistakes into Stepping Stones for Success. And um, basically, one of Maxwell's main points of his book is that what separates average people and average leaders from superstar leaders, super successful people, is one thing. It's their willingness to admit and own their mistakes. Their willingness to admit and own their mistakes so that they quit falling in the same hole over and over again. Guys, this is so difficult for us to do. I mean, it's it's difficult for everybody, but particularly for men. We've got to get to a place where we can just humble ourselves and admit from time to time that we messed up. All right, that's the first one. Here's the second one. Fools are consumed by what they don't have. Fools are consumed by what they don't have. You know, I tell you, I was just jaw-dropped last week when John made the point about King David, and here he is on his roof, and, he, and he's just obsessing about this woman that he can see, right? Never dawned on me that right underneath him, He's got a whole palace full of the most beautiful women in the, in the kingdom. He's got everything that he could possibly desire, and yet he wants the one thing. He's obsessed. He's consumed with the one thing that he can't have in the story. I want to, you know, as, as Nathan is, is calling David out, this is what he says. This is, this is you know, he's saying this from God. And, he's, and look, look at... What God is reminding David of all he's given him. Check this out. It's, it's in verses 7 and 8. God says to David through Nathan, I anointed you king over Israel. That's one. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. That's two. I gave your master's house to you. Three. And your master's wives into your arms. Four. I gave you all Israel 
and Judah. I gave you the entire kingdom. And if all this had not been enough, I would have given you even more, David. What God is saying to David right there is, look, can't you look and see all that you have and all that I've given you? And you've forgotten all of it because you've been so consumed with the one thing that you do not have. I think we all can relate to that a little bit. Getting caught up in the things that we don't have. It was about 10 years ago, and I was uh, sitting in a church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I heard one of those sermons that, that really rocked me that day. It was actually a sermon about pornography. And um, no, it wasn't that pornography is not something God wants you to look at. That wasn't mind-blowing. I kind of figured that one out. But, um, you know, the, it was a much, you know, there, there was a whole message about it. And what really got me was understanding not just, okay, God doesn't want you to be looking at pornography, but it was the idea that when, the reason is, there's a, there's a deeper reason why. Okay? And the reason why God, it's not just because God's like, oh, well, you have fun looking at that, and I'm just going to be a killjoy, so you better not do that because I want you just to be holy and worship me and have no fun. Okay, that, that's not it at all. The reason that God doesn't want us looking at pornography, as it was explained to me and totally opened my eyes, was because when you do that, okay, guys, especially this is speaking especially to you, okay, when you do that, what you're doing, and men, we are very visual, okay, we are visually oriented people. Images stay in our minds for a very, very long time. And so what happens is you are conditioning your mind and your body to be sexually attracted to a certain type of woman, a certain image, a certain thing, okay? And so basically what you're doing then, without even realizing it, is you're undermining your own sexual attraction to your future spouse. Because let me tell you something, okay? The the women that you're looking at in, in those magazines or on the videos or whatever, okay, Th- those types of women, those aren't going to be the types of women that you're going to be marrying, most likely, okay? Your wife probably isn't going to be five foot 11, 85 pounds, you know. Yeah. Okay? Probably not, it's probably not going to happen. And if she is that, she's probably not going to stay that way forever. So the deal is, the deal is that when you do this, and it totally, it just opened my eyes. I was like, oh, like, I, I got it. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, this isn't because God's trying to steal my fun. This is because God is trying to protect me so that when I meet my wife, okay, if she doesn't look like a Barbie doll, I still will be incredibly attracted to her. We'll still have this incredible sex life, the, the life, you know, that God wants us to have. And so as soon as that clicked for me, I, it was not a problem for me anymore to stop looking at, you know, videos and magazines and stuff. And it's not even just that. Like, I mean, there's no... You know, I mean, if you've got, like, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, I'm not saying, like, God's going to rain down fire from hell and, you know, whatever. But just for me, okay, for me, I just was like, I don't even, that's not helping me. You know what I'm saying? That's not helping me in, in any way, shape, or form, guys. It's just not. It's, not. it's not productive for me. All it's doing is conditioning my mind to be attracted to something that's not unrealistic. It's, it's making me focus. It's consuming me with something that I can't have or I don't have. So here's what I want to say. To you guys, don't be consumed with what you don't have, okay? So, you know, what I want to say to you, you're here today and you're a married man, just focus your thoughts on your wife. Take stock of all the wonderful things that you have going on in your life. And if you're here today and you're a single guy, you're not in a relationship, you're like, well, I can't, what am I supposed to focus on? I don't have, you know, the, the person to focus on right now. 
what I would say is just, you know, as, as God is telling David here, just take stock, take inventory of your life. Look at everything that God has given you, all the good things, all the blessings, you know, be it work, be it friends, be it whatever it is, okay? And consume yourself with all the amazing things that God has given you. That is a much better plan of attack. All right. I want to look at how this whole exchange between Nathan and David wraps up. Because you see, as we said in the beginning, David was in a position of absolute power. I mean, if David didn't like it, I mean, he could deny it. He could send Nathan out. He could just kill him. I mean, whatever David wanted to do, just depend on his mood for the day, you know? Here's David's response. It says in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In the Hebrew, that's just two words for that whole sentence. And the two words are hata Yehovah. Hata Yehovah. So in just two words, David just fully admits it. He said, man, I blew it. I've sinned against God. David doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't try and rationalize or explain it away. He doesn't go into some big, long story of how, oh, it just started like this. He was taking a bath in front of my palace, man. I mean, how could I know? He doesn't. He just says, I blew it. I blew it. You ever wonder why David, when you stop and think about all the times that David screwed up and how his family turned out, you ever wonder why David was considered a hero in the Bible? Man after God's own heart. I mean, David, King David. Everyone talks about how great King David is. King David was a screw-up. Why is he the hero? Why is he one of the great heroes of the Bible? Here's the reason why, you guys. It's because when he blows it, he says, oh God, I blew it. He's real with God. He says, God, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's why David was awesome. That's why David was awesome. He stayed close to God. A lot of times what happens with sin, especially sexual sin, is it causes us so much guilt and shame, and we totally lose sight of the fact that God forgives us. He's right there extending his hand to us. What we do is we pull far away from God, and we say, well, if I blew it once, well, shoot, I might as well, you know, just before I ask for forgiveness, I'll just really go on a good little rampage here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, a lot of times this is what happens. We pull, we pull away from God. What made David great was he stayed close to God. That is why he was a God after, or man after God's own heart. And here's what's so cool about our God, is his response through Nathan to David, immediately following in that same verse, verse 13. It says, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Think about this. After all that David has done, he's taken another man's wife he slept with her, and then he's gotten one of his finest soldiers killed, murdered him. I mean, this is totally scandalous. I mean, we think about what Anthony Weiner did was terrible. I mean, but this is, this is a thousand times worse. And God says, your sin's gone. It's totally gone. I've erased it. Now, it doesn't mean that David isn't going to experience consequences. That's very important that we would understand this. Because the prophet then goes on to explain all these things that are going to happen to David. David has set these things in motion. You don't make these choices and do these types of immoral things and not have your family members notice and not set off a whole range of things that are going to happen. 
God's saying, I'm not taking away the consequences, okay? You did some things wrong, you're going to reap what you sow, okay? That's the bottom line. Unfortunately, that's just the reality, and a lot of us can attest to that. And sometimes we've made some really stupid decisions in our lives. We've done things we've regret, and even though God forgives us completely, there's no guilt, there's no shame, but sometimes we still have to suffer the consequences of those things. We bear those scars in our lives. But the awesome thing is that God totally, completely forgives. Right there, not even a hesitation. It's like your sin's gone. Your sin's gone. So if you're here this morning, and, and maybe you feel a tremendous amount of guilt or shame in your life over choices or consequences, you know, things that you've done, I just want, want you to know that our God is a forgiving God. That's why he sent Jesus Christ to this earth. I mean, your forgiveness ticket has already been written. God's just waiting for you just to, just to ask, okay? Doesn't mean that all the consequences will be taken away, but the forgiveness part is totally totally taken care of for us. If he can forgive a guy like David, I mean, you might be here and you're thinking, well, I don't know if God could really forgive me. I mean, you don't know what I've done. Well, I tell you, I know what David did. He did some pretty bad stuff. It's pretty awesome to know that we have a God who is that radically forgiving. His grace is enough. It covers every single one of us, everything we've done, everything we will do in our life. I'm going to ask uh, the music team to come forward now. And, um, what I want to do is the music team's got a song for us today. It's a new song, and it's kind of a more of a reflective, contemplative song. And uh, it's a song that I, that I want us to use to just have a time of prayer. And so uh, what we're going to do is the team is going to play, and we're going we're gonna to turn the lights down low. And uh, I just want to give you a chance to kind of just, you know, thinking about what David did here. The reason that David was a great man of God was not because he had this great track record. It wasn't because, you know, he didn't screw up X, Y, and Z. The reason that David was great is because he stayed close to God. It's that when he, when he messed up, he would just come before God and he would say, I just blew it, God. I'm so sorry. You know? When we talk about sex, there is a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and just stuff that comes along with that. You might be here, and you might be feeling in that boat. And so I just want to give you a chance, just between you and God, to be able to just confess. We don't talk a lot about confession here at Grace. Catholics do confession amazingly well. Protestants, not so much. But confession is a powerful, powerful thing. And here's why. Here's why it's so powerful. Confession isn't for God, okay? It's not for God. It's not for God's sake. God doesn't need our confession. Amen? God doesn't need our confession. Confession is for our sake. Confession is so we can mark a stake in the ground where we can get, you know, we can come before God. We can just say, God, I'm sorry, I blew it. And we can recognize in that moment that his grace is enough for us, that it totally covers us, that we're already forgiven through Jesus Christ. And it gives us the ability to, to try and stake a new course, to stop falling in the same hole in the sidewalk, to chart a new path. And so I want to give you just a few moments to do that here. Maybe your prayer to God is just, God, I'm sorry, it's been a while. You know, or God, man, I really struggle, God, with admitting that I'm wrong. I really struggle with that. Help me with that. Humble me. Take away some of my pride in that area. Help me just to remember what you've given me and all that I've got. Why am I so consumed with what I don't have? Whatever your prayer is today, I want to give you just a few moments as a team plays, just to bow your head. We'll go ahead and let's turn the lights down. The team's going to start playing. 
And I'm going to uh, just lead us with a couple short words, and then the rest of the time is just yours, you and God, right there in your seat. Father God, we just thank you for how awesome you are and that your grace is enough for us. Lord, that we are already forgiven through Jesus Christ, that there is no condemnation, your word says, for those in Christ Jesus. God, there are many of us in this room struggling with with all sorts of things, and I just pray, God, that you would allow us just to be like King David and just to be real with you right now. Whatever it is that is on our minds, let us take that to you in prayer. And God, I just pray these next few moments will be sacred moments, will be holy moments between us and you.